Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, this is Peter Chapman from the Financial Times in London. We're featuring the FT's present special report on Asian business schools and talking to Andrew Jack, the FT's recently appointed global education editor. Andrew has just returned from an extensive Asian trip in his new role, and we'll be discussing some of the key issues today concerning Asian business schools. Andrew, welcome back. How was the trip? And tell us where you got to. Thanks very much. Yes, pretty intensive trip, but very exciting. I was in Asia over a couple of weeks in Singapore, in Hong Kong, and then in mainland China, in both Shanghai and Beijing, trying to understand more about the education system and in particular business education, where you've seen this huge growth in activity and investment in dynamism and debate around how to teach this area that obviously is one which there's enormous and growing demand. So you were focusing, as you say, during a particularly intensive trip on various issues. But what were the key issues as as you saw them? Well, I think one of the key things is you've got obviously these two huge national markets, if you like, India and China, vast and growing population, huge economic opportunity, a rise in the middle class. And that's creating a vast demand, amongst other things, for business education. And both countries, of course, have traditionally sent perhaps a very small percentage, but quite significant numbers of students elsewhere, notably into Europe, to the UK to some degree, and to the US and North America more generally for training university, for exposure, of course, to English and other languages. But now you're also seeing the emergence of a very significant domestic market in both countries of business schools and options for people to stay at home and learn. So demand is much more being matched by supply at the moment. Yes, I think that's right. There's clearly continuing and rapid demand. You've seen in the US, for example, some tailing off of appetite for MBAs. It may be that they've got to sort of peak levels of demand. But from China and India in particular, and indeed other parts of Asia, there's no sign of that appetite relenting. Of course, you know, traditionally, a lot of uh, people from those countries might have gone to establish themselves and built a career in North America in particular. But now so many see the vast domestic opportunities. They see the real dynamism is taking place at home, that they want to stay there or at the very least, having gone abroad for some exposure, come back and build their lives and careers back in their own countries. So so in China, take the case of China, you have Chinese people, Chinese students just wanting to learn more about mainland China. Yes, I mean, the fact is, of course, 
business education has two very significant elements. One is clearly the technical skills that you learn, whether it's in finance or management or leadership. Uh, but the other aspect, of course, is building these very powerful networks of students and faculty and alumni in the future. And of course, in a country like China in particular, but of course across the region, those personal contacts and the bonds that you form at that age are incredibly important for business, for continued networking, for ideas. And so there's huge appetite to really be there where the market is happening and to learn from it and capitalise on those sort of networks as well as the technical training that's offered. Right. Now, I always thought about um, business education in many ways. It was an idea that grew out of America and the idea that business could be formulaic. I mean, Americans will argue whether East or West Coast, you can do business. There's different mentalities in New York as opposed to Los Angeles. But, you know, if you're from Kansas, you can deal with almost any state. We, certainly in my perspective as a European, we often imagine is it true that the likes of China very much depend on these informal networks, which um, people, Chinese themselves, quite often want to know more about the informal networks in other parts of the country they don't come from? Can these business courses really get to the core of that kind of relationship? Yeah, I mean, I think there are some useful and more technical skills that are taught. What you've seen certainly also is a kind of growing regionalisation, if you like, and increasing attempts to make the whole programme of training much more relevant to the countries and the regions that they're in. And that could be, for example, in the syllabus discussion about China's Belt and Road Initiative, around uh, the extraordinary growth in fintech or in e-commerce, around cultural differences, not only between East and West, but within large countries or between countries in Asia. I was at a, a business school in Singapore, for example, in the career service where they teach the students the different forms of dining etiquette. You know, they had a table laid out with a, a Western table service, a Chinese and a Japanese, for example. So some very important issues of protocol mm -hmm. that remain important, particularly in more traditional businesses. But at the same time, of course, yes, those personal contacts are very important. And it's been very much, I think, a point of, of marketing, notably in China, about how those are used. And indeed, it's actually even caused some tensions with the authorities who've been quite concerned that some of those next works can get too close and could lead to potential corruption. Mm. Now, OK, yeah, right. And is there, tell us a little bit more about, um, you know, the competition between suppliers, shall we say, of business education. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of schools of different sorts offering business education of varied types in the leading markets. So India and China in particular, notably for their own students, mm -hmm. although with a little bit of, of kind of international elements and students coming in now to the faculties. You've seen an opening up increasingly, notably in China, of faculty, a lot of Chinese who are now returning, the turtles as they call them, who would have perhaps been trained and spent many years teaching in the US, but elsewhere in European business schools, or indeed in business around the world, now coming back home to enrich the curricula. And so you've got this increasing tension perhaps to some degree, healthy competition if you like, first of all domestically around the overall level of quality and standards. An awful lot of the schools, notably in India and China for example, are not necessarily accredited internationally, sometimes have run into concerns with their own domestic authorities about the sorts of training they're providing, the value for money if you like and so on. Then of course 
historically over many years, Singapore and Hong Kong were real centers of regional excellence. So Singapore, three or four very prestigious domestic institutions, Hong Kong similarly, and now also third-party institutions from Europe and the US, for example, building partnerships or even in some cases standalone campuses to offer training both to students from the region or indeed Western students who are keen to get exposure and knowledge. Now, Singapore, of course, for a long time was seen as a, a very comfortable, safe, good place to be the gateway into Asia, the sort of place that a lot of multinationals would use as their regional headquarters for Asia. And that, of course, led to it being a very attractive place for the internationalization of the provision of business education. Hong Kong, of course, equally the legacy of British rule, but also the very close geographical proximity and, of course, now the political combination, if you like, with mainland China makes it also a very strong point of entry, notably into China. And then, of course, mainland China itself in the last few years. And so Chinese as well as international students who are interested in understanding China, increasingly that's a place to come and at least spend some time, even if you're not necessarily getting your full business education qualification from within the country. Singapore, on the other hand, might be increasingly seen as the gateway to ASEAN and to Southeast Asia, for example. Tell us a little bit more about the Hong Kong-China situation. We get reports that the balance has swung with more people going back to China, as it were. But how, how are relations in terms of business education between Hong Kong and the mainland? I think the the growth in demand, the size of the population, the capacity to pay means that even if... There's a gradual shift, perhaps, to China. There's still going to be a significant number of students from mainland China who are interested and willing to go to Hong Kong, to Singapore, to the US or elsewhere to get at least some exposure and knowledge and contacts, particularly if they're part of groups with big global or regional ambitions. But certainly where a few years ago, perhaps, the capacity of the mainland Chinese market and the big institutions to attract international students was less. That's now significantly changed. There's a lot of investment in new buildings, in curricula, in faculty, in case studies for teaching that are much more based in mainland China, in mainland China on and about the region. But Hong Kong, of course, still remains a much more international environment, some greater degree of sense of stability and security and plugged into the wider world. So I think we won't see any declines in absolute terms of student numbers there either in the next few years. There's there's kind of enough room for growth for all of those different core regional hubs. What about the partnerships question? There was a, a big thrust in partnerships uh, as between China, Hong Kong, etc. But um, how is that, that working itself out? There have been a few problems there, some ideological, some political. What was your reading of that situation? Yeah, so I think it's more open and indeed encouraged, for example, in both Singapore and Hong Kong to have international universities and institutions implant themselves, sometimes with standalone campuses, sometimes in partnership with existing schools. So those two countries are open. I think mainland China has been more complicated because the authorities, the ministry, the Communist Party have a greater influence and control. It's pretty much impossible for a standalone foreign university to set up shop within mainland China. They nearly all do it through some form of more or less strong partnership with a local player. 
The Chinese authorities also for domestic universities have certain limits they impose on class sizes or the capacity of schools to expand even within the country to other parts. They're trying to encourage within China a lot more development of educational infrastructure in the less developed west of the country, for example, and discourage everyone focusing and growing in the richer areas on the east, including in Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, and so on. So there's some degree of tensions over that. There are some issues also about promotion of faculty and how far the political structures still have the ultimate say in terms of dictating and influencing that. But I think there's also a huge degree of freedom. Now, what you have seen in the last few months even is the Chinese authorities closed down more than 200 partnerships between Chinese universities and international universities, many of them the majority actually not in business education. The reality at this stage, I think, is a lot of that was housekeeping, if you like. There were a lot of programs that had been created earlier on, which hadn't actually taken off. There were some where there probably were some genuine controls about quality. And clearly, as the level of awareness, the investment, the drive for high quality standards is rising, it's understandable that some of the less high quality partnerships have come under pressure. Are we seeing one of the great contradictions of our lifetimes, if you like, your Chinese communism meeting Chinese capitalism, working itself out in a particularly interesting way? There must be tensions there. How are you seeing that? Yes, I think there are some tensions. I, uh, one professor said to me that, you know, they, they, particularly because they're trying to build their international academic standing, they certainly don't want to be seen in any way giving a, a positive or a false spin a, around matters that are ideological. They might prefer to kind of veer away from those sensitive subjects. But actually, of course, business education compared to many other aspects of university or even school education, notably around the politics, the culture, the history, are maybe perhaps less fundamental and therefore business education is seen as a much more practical, hands-on set of skills that's a bit less ideological. But of course, there's a debate and attention throughout actually Asia and certainly within China, about whether if you focus on those sort of hard technical skills and you don't encourage free thinking, that could restrict capacity in the future for creativity, for innovation, for the capacity really to truly operate effectively, particularly outside China. And so that's something which I think will continue to be simmering in the background. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. It's a fascinating and fast-changing picture and one we'll certainly be returning to. For the Financial Times Asian Business School Special Report, we've been speaking to Andrew Jack, the FT's Global Education Editor. Our podcast producer was Ruth Lewis-Cost, and I'm Peter Chapman in London. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. 
We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.